Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by Catherine Boyle, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, focused on investing in American dynamism. Prior to working in the venture capital industry, Catherine was a reporter for the Washington Post. Roger and Catherine discussed the challenges that innovative defense technology companies face when working with the Pentagon and about the differences between Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. Catherine Boyle, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we're, we're thrilled for you to join us. Of course, you're known uh, as a venture capitalist with the very uh, prestigious and well-known uh, venture capital firm in Dreesen Horowitz. Uh, but before you enter the world of VC and all the amazing things that happened there, you were a reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, <laughs> yes. Connect the dots there. It's not one that is intuitive, at least to me. Yes, uh, and I prefer the adjective struggling reporter at the Washington <laughs> Post. Uh, so I was there in the in the pre-Bezos era, uh, which is a very different time than than, than we're experiencing now. And uh, you know, my, my story is a little bit circuitous because I probably would have stayed a reporter. I was a creature of Washington, sort of. I, I consider myself an amphibian, half Washington, half Silicon Valley. But started my career in Washington. I was there for ten years. And what's interesting is I, I probably wouldn't have left reporting had the newspaper not been going down the tubes at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was it was very it was a very difficult time. There were a lot of people leaving, a lot of people getting fired just because of the business model being replaced by technology. And so I sort of had this, well, I need to go out to Silicon Valley and see what this is all about. It's, it's changing everything. Every story I'm writing is about technology. I was very fortunate uh, to, to move to Silicon Valley. Uh, a, a friend of mine who was in the Navy uh, had gone to business school there and he said, you know, they take people who know nothing about business. They take reporters. Uh, and so, and so I, I hopped over. And the thing that really struck me uh, was just how different the ecosystems are. I, I often say Washington is is a place where it's very zero sum. You know, I win, you you lose, you win, I lose. It's very much about elections, very much an understanding that not everyone can win. Um, and that's not the ethos in Silicon Valley. It's very much a belief that there's optimism, people can build alongside of each other, and that the more the merrier. And so that was really what struck me about the culture. And in some ways, I think it's the culture that we need in America. Well, you wrote a really interesting piece on that, which we'll get to, I expect, later on in in this discussion. But we're not going to let you exit your bio so quickly. It's quite interesting that you're at the Washington Post. You're describing this period before Jeff Bezos uh, bought the Post. The, The business model no longer works. Most people, I would assume, would make tech the enemy. And yeah. that reporter who uh, truly uh, knows how to use the pen and, and turn it into a sword would probably go ahead and, and, and just write off or yeah. attack the tech world. But you did not do that. You actually uh, confronted the enemy and, and, and joined. Did you actually have the bias that I just characterized or did you kind of understand during that time what was going on? You're like, hey, you know, um, I'm working for an industry that may be the dinosaur. Let me go to uh, the the healthy thing, which is, you know, the world of tech and and, and VC and, and everything Silicon Valley has to offer. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. I I mean, when I was at the post and, you know, starving reporter, I probably did have that bias. Um, And I, and I empathize with it. It's very hard to see industries rise and fail. I, I think the, the, the thing that I approached Silicon Valley with was true curiosity. I mean, at the time I described it as this is the biggest story of my lifetime and I'm not there. And any good reporter would say, okay, the biggest story is happening in this ecosystem. I don't understand it. Let me go understand it. And how can I get to the story as quickly as possible? And so that was my motivation. I figured if if, if something like this is happening, if everything is moving towards tech, uh, I need to be there and I need to understand it. And then I can make a judgment about it when I'm when I'm really acquainted with it versus in Washington sort of looking at it from the sidelines. How much does that help you as a venture capitalist? Because as a reporter, you know, you naturally need to understand and connect the dots and explain what's going on. I imagine your colleagues are more focused on, you know, the narrow set of investments that they're looking at, or or perhaps not. Is the mindset of a Washington Post reporter and a venture capitalist or successful venture capitalist actually not too far apart? I mean, I know there's always the storytelling is a big part of what it takes uh, to succeed, you know, Theranos aside, you know, how much of it, um, the skill set of the reporter does complement life as a venture capitalist? Yeah, no, I, I, I often make the joke that they're the same job, except at the end of a venture capitalist or of a reporter's job, you write the story, a VC writes the check. I mean, it's like, it's very similar in terms of how you get to conviction or how you, how you think about what you're going to write about. Uh, but I think there's, there's a, there's a crucial dif- difference. And I think that it's the difference of, of certainty. So reporters, you know, at, at their best, they very much want to be certain about all of the facts. They're looking towards the past. They're looking at things that have already happened. And, you know, a story, you know, historically would not go to press until you were like 95% certain you had X number of sources. There was sort of this view that this is, this is the truth. And I, I and I, so. yeah, yeah, that, that's, I, I'm saying classically and historically, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not always. Uh, but I think in, in terms of venture capital, you know, you're looking for like, I would say like 20 to 30% certainty, and you don't have any certainty. It, it's really built on conviction. And so, so you're, you're really trying to sort of investigate things that other people aren't investigating. You're really trying to kind of make a case for what the future might look like. And then you're betting on the future. You're betting on optimism. Um, and so I think the biggest change for me mentally was to have less skepticism about, you know, people and their motivations. And I think that's, you know, that's a really important trait of the press um, and, 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 and needed in terms of being the fourth estate. But I think like that toward, that kind of skepticism does not help you when you're trying to build. And I actually think that's the fundamental problem when the press and Silicon Valley confront each other. They can't speak that language. They can't speak the language of optimism. Fascinating. And betting on optimism. I really, I really like that. That's something, of course, you know, uh, sits well here yes. in Reagan land. You know, one other element of, of your career stands out, and that is, Catherine, you're a female in the world of venture capital, mm-hmm. um, generally known as a boys club. Axios survey from a few months ago found that slightly less than 10 percent of decision makers at U.S. venture capital firms, I'm not sure how they define decision makers, but let's just go with it for a second, are women. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that the case? And is that an advantage for you, actually, because you have a perspective, perhaps, that your male counterparts don't. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I I look at venture as a multiplayer strategy game in many ways. It's very different than any other type of investing. And anyone who knows anything about strategy games is that uh, diversity often makes things better. It, it, like you, you you use the cards that you have. And so what's interesting is I, I see my, my biggest point of diversity is having this incredible background in Washington, this incredible background in, in, in reporting that I think has trained me to be think a little bit differently than I think a lot of, of other people in, in Silicon Valley. And so I think like when, when we're talking about who can be 
successful in the job, you know, wh why, why it can be important for there be different types of people with different backgrounds, different types of, you know, intellectual diversity. I think it's incredibly important, uh, just given that we're talking about solving America's biggest problems. And someone from the Midwest or the, or the rural South is going to have a very different background and very different understanding of what those problems are than someone who comes from California, someone who comes from an elite institution. Uh, so I think it's great. I think uh, Silicon Valley has very much opened up uh, the gates for, for different types of investors, and especially since I've been there since, you know, 2014. Um, and so I think we just need more of that because more perspectives actually leads to solving different types of problems. All for that. Well, well said. Uh, one set of problems that you work on at Andreessen Horowitz is national security problems, national defense problems, aerospace and defense sector, technology, not limited to that, but we're going to hone in on that because, uh, Catherine, you made waves, at least in the community of national defense. Not too long ago, we held the Reagan National Defense Forum, which takes place out in California at the Reagan Library early December annually. And ahead of that, uh, you had a tweet storm, variety of tweets explaining why you thought the window of opportunity for venture capital to essentially help and invest in national defense was closing. I think you said something to affect it. Here we go. Um, after five years of DOD saying, we want to work with the best startups, we have at most two years before founders walk away and private capital dries up. Catherine, mm -hmm. why so pessimistic? Yeah, no, we spent we spent some time talking about optimism, and now I'm giving sort of the, the hard, hard reality of how venture capital works. It's like we're optimistic until we become pessimists. Um, what's interesting, I think, about what's happened, the greatest shift that I saw in Silicon Valley to talk about shifts and cultural changes was actually the way that Silicon Valley views working with government. You know, when I arrived in Silicon Valley, you know, seven, eight years ago, you had to be crazy to work, to say you wanted to, to build a government company. I mean, there were no examples aside from SpaceX, which even at the time wasn't as big as it is now. I mean, there were just few examples of any venture-backed company working with government, solely working with government um, and, and doing well and, and sort of being able to, to make that sale in a way that, say, the Raytheons and the Lockheed Martins of the world can. And so there was a massive amount of pessimism around the market. And that shifted. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, Secretary of Defense or then Secretary of Defense Ash Carter talking about the DIUX uh, initiative. Um, really, you know, it, it, it was That's a the Defense Innovation Unit, this kind yes. of outpost for the Pentagon in the heart of Silicon Valley and other innovation hubs in the, across the country. Yes, I think there was, and, and I actually do think it came from the DOD. There was an incredible realization that China has this amazing thing called authoritarianism, which makes them uh, allowed to work with any company that they want in the country. And that we actually have a problem in that we have a, you know, a beautiful capitalist system, but we have to buy from the best companies. And we are not set up with a, a procurement system that was you know, built in the mid 20th century uh, to acquire software and to acquire artificial intelligence. And I think that was a realization that came from the DOD. And there was an active push to, to learn how to work with this kind of weird place called Silicon Valley that had really been ignoring government for many years. Um, and so that shift has been extraordinary. I have watched so many companies and, and, and not only on the, on the case of investors, investors saying we're gonna put real capital behind these companies that are selling to the DOD. The number of founders that come to me and say, I wanna build for defense. I mean, it is incredible. Young people coming out of the best universities in America saying, I wanna build a defense company. You would have never heard that five years ago. And so that's been the extraordinary shift. Is that Elon Musk and SpaceX and Peter Thiel and Palantir kind of getting people's 
kind of eyes to go wide and saying, wow, I want to do that. I can do that. I mean, is that how we got there? Now, right now, everything's positive, you said. You haven't told us exactly why we're going to be pessimistic, but but do my follow-up, and then you can tell me sure. why it's so dark. Yeah, there, there's so many success stories, and or, or I should say a few big success stories, and that's the thing that Silicon Valley really anchors on big success stories, not hundreds of companies winning, but some companies becoming massive opportunities. And that is SpaceX and Palantir. They've both done quite well. And so I think founders need to see that it can be done. And that encourages a lot more innovation in the ecosystem. Now, to get to the pessimistic part of this, uh, the difference between Silicon Valley and Washington is timescales. You know, Washington just really, uh, you know, like you, you can punt the can down the road all you want and you keep talking and keep talking and keep talking until there's a crisis. And, and that's sort of the, you know, the, the kind of way that Washington works. No one really wants to kind of pull the trigger on the hard decisions because they don't want the effects of that. And so that's not startups. There are hard decisions every board meeting, and that's every three months. You know, it, it's it, these companies live on 18 month time cycles. And so companies need to see metrics. They need to see things happening in the business in order to continue getting capital. And so what we've seen, and, and this is where I think, you know, the DOD has done quite well, it's we're going to give more SBIR, small business grants to startups. We're going to make sure that startups have, you know, the opportunity to, to, to work with us with small contracts. But what we haven't seen are real contracts, production contracts. And the thing that I think investors have woken up to is all of these different strategic initiatives coming out of the DOD that looked really good on paper, a couple million dollars in revenue. It looks like people are excited. It looks like you have advocates in Washington. Very few of those have led to real production contracts or more importantly, programs of record. Well, which let me push back a little bit on this. Um, um, you know, what I hear you saying is, we need to demonstrate like real money is going to go to these firms and, you know, kind of the low hanging fruits, low risk, less disruptive type awards, whether it's a small business contract or a prototype, that's kind of easy. And the venture capitalists are seeing that and they're going to say, well, until we see them actually break some glass and truly give a big production contract, you know, not with millions, but billions attached to it. It doesn't have to be billions. Hundreds that's of millions, maybe? Well, well, it's interesting. I mean, like big money for Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, the bit like those are billion dollar contracts. I, I don't think Palantir had a billion dollar contract until, you know, it's, it's second decade of invest, you know, of, of existence. And so it's like, it actually, you don't need to see that big of contracts. And I actually think that's the, the misconception when Silicon Valley talks about big money, we're talking about, you know, tens, tens of millions. Uh, I think when, when, when Washington talks about big money, sometimes it's, they're talking about billions and trillions. No, so it's, it's, trillions it's, it's, now. we're in the world of trillions. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think that that's the, that's the thing where I actually do think there is a common ground for Washington to, to award production contracts. Maybe it'll take longer to get programs of record, but to award production contracts that are real revenue versus just pilots and sort of SBIRs that kind of lead lead founders on to believe they have real revenue. And then of course the faucet gets turned off and then what are they supposed to do? So why, so why is it just 24 months, right? I mean, I, this seems to be a problem we can overcome. Why so pessimistic that they won't figure this out and uh, kind of transcend th this problem? Well, so I, I, I think it's possible. No, I, and I'm and I'm not. Pest I, I I think there are solutions. Uh, at the at the bottom of my tweet, sir, I did have some solutions, but I, I think it, there needs to be sort of a dire wake up call. That I'm you know, solution, I think, talk about those solutions. Sure. So so I I think there needs to be a cultural shift, which is very a very hard solution. But I think right now, if you're a procurement officer, you are rewarded or at least you are supported if you make the easier decision, which is to work with the primes. 
It's, it's to say, yes, we need AI and we don't really know who's going to build the best types of AI products, but we know that one of these primes will be able to figure it out and subcontract. But that's not how Silicon Valley business works. No venture capitalist is going to fund a business that says, and I'm going to be selling through uh, the primes. Like, Explain that. That's a really key point that perhaps people outside of Silicon Valley don't quite understand. It, yeah. It's taken me some time to kind of wrap my head around this because What's the big deal if the next Palantir took it, you know, worked through, pick your favorite Prime, a Boeing, a Lockheed Martin, a Raytheon? Why is that such a problem? It's money. They're going to get the money either way. Yeah. Well, so so it's not it, it's it's a different type of money and it's a different type of sale. So I think there are great examples of dual use companies, and these are companies that both build commercial technologies and they build you know for for defense and for government. Um, and the thing about how you build a Silicon Valley company is no company starts out focused on two markets. They always start out focused on one market. And so the reason why you've seen companies that start out for the commercial market and they build commercial and then they start a federal practice and they've done well is because they have this business that's already working and then they can silo the federal business. What we're seeing in Silicon Valley is people saying, I want to sell directly to government. I don't want to do the dual use thing, which you know has always been the bias of government. And I think it's also a bias of the primes. They like dual use because it means that they're going to be the ones selling directly to government. The, the founders that want to build for defense purposes, they want to be working with directly with the DOD from day one. And those that's how they're recruiting engineers. Those are the type they want to solve. America's hardest problems. They want to solve problems for the DOD. But if you tell them you're going to have to sell through the primes, you know, then you're on a you're you're on selling through a broker, you're selling through a prime schedule, you're going to get squeezed on those on those margins, on those contracts, and it's not going to look advantageous, you know, in the in the early days of, a, of, of the company's life cycle. And so it actually is just a business problem. Like, it, like the companies that are going to be the most valuable in the minds of venture capitalists are the ones that are going to be selling directly to the DOD. And that's a function that they need to 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 um, to have excellence in in order to become the next SpaceX, in order to become the next Palantir. Good answer. Right. So profitability takes a hit. But also, I think there's something else going on here. I'd love for you to comment on it, which is Venture capital, Silicon Valley, they live on the disruption. They want to just turn things on its head. And my sense of talking to colleagues of yours and other people in the startup world is they feel there is a massive disruption opportunity within the Department of Defense and military, both in terms of the traditional primes, but also in the way the Department of Defense does business. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you a simple way it's, it's formulated. There's obviously more depth to it. But instead of the Department of Defense being built to buy hardware, metal benders, you know, think uh, an aircraft carrier or a fighter aircraft, right? That's the way they normally buy it. Really, the future resides with buying software, right, mm -hmm. and AI. And so there's going to be this flip, and they want to be the ones leading that flip and working directly with the military to disrupt, to the Department of Defense disrupt, as opposed to perhaps not allowing the full disruption to take place if you go through that prime. Is that a fair way of putting it or, or am I missing something there? No, I think there's a bit more nuance to it in that I think that the hardest thing that a company can do is acquire another company that has a completely different culture. We underestimate how important culture is. And what, we've, what has been happening in this country, I would argue for the last 30 years, is that a certain type of person has been going to Washington 
And a certain type of person has been going to build in Silicon Valley. And those cultures are not compatible. They just do not understand each other. And so the, you know, the, the question of, well, why wouldn't Silicon Valley want to work with the primes? These are hundred year old companies. They have totally different cultures. They value things like hardware. They value things like the way things were in the 20th century. Silicon Valley has a complete forward thinking outlook that, that doesn't value those things. You know, it, I, I often, you know, when you look at the leaders in Washington, there's sort of this wait your turn mentality. Like you, you can, you can be a leader of an agency when you're in your 50s or 60s. We have 19-year-olds building billion-dollar companies in Silicon Valley. And that's just normal. Like we prize youth, we prize people who build, we prize, you know, small teams of people who don't know what they're doing. And so I think there is sort of this, this cultural misalignment that makes it very difficult for the two places to, to understand each other. And the primes are part of this old way of thinking. So I don't think it's disruption for disruption's sake or ego, we have to be the leaders of it. It's it's genuinely that we're not speaking the same language. And, and we've worked really hard over the last five years to understand each other's languages. And, you know, I, I think there's there's some of us who are really trying to sort of, this is how Washington thinks, this is how Silicon Valley thinks. Um, but it is a really hard cultural problem when you're trying to, to merge two types of people who have very different incentives and very different understandings of how the world works. Fascinating points. And, and in a moment, I want to jump to the kind of broader uh, issue of culture in Silicon Valley and, and get to your Substack article, because the issue issues surrounding the military and national defense is just one piece of it. You have a lot more on that front, which we'll get to. But at the Reagan National Defense Forum, after your tweet storm, Catherine, the Secretary of Defense addressed the national defense community, addressed the country from the Reagan Library. And a big chunk of his speech was devoted to exactly, in my view, the set of issues you pointed to. Mm -hmm. Secretary Austin wasn't aware, perhaps, that there was a 24-month window, but there certainly was a sense of urgency that we, that is the military, the country, really needed to bring in this innovation to mm -hmm. leverage startups, the community that you invest in, Catherine. And he pointed all about this valley of death, which yeah. is the uh, euphemism or, or the term that's used for companies getting perhaps these small business contracts, you know, prototype contracts of the kind you're talking about before, but not actually getting to production contracts. Yeah. When you heard the Secretary of Defense speak, Catherine, and talk about the Valley of Death, did that make you more comfortable? Or is this just Washington rhetoric without anything behind it? So I, I am an optimist at heart. So I, I will say that I, I'm hopeful that we can we can find a solution to this. Um, the, I think it's important that there is a recognition I think there's never it, it is a genuine recognition on both sides that that China has this this structural advantage that they know they have um, and that we have a business and procurement problem. It's not that we don't have the best technologies. It's not that we don't have the most talented military in the world. It's 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 this cultural and, and, and procurement problem. And so I think isolating the problem and the fact that the secretary spoke about it so publicly, I think that's an extraordinary first step. I think it's probably the most important thing we can do is just acknowledge the problem because then we can you know try to find solutions. I think the the you know reading the the coverage of it, and I think there was a lot of great coverage. One of the things that a lot of people pointed out is that 2,500 grants have been given in the last year to startups or in the last few years to startups, and that's something where I think there's just a misunderstanding of how startups work. There are not 2,500 amazing technology companies. We don't have you know 2,500. That, that's a that's probably the biggest portfolio of technology companies, bigger than any venture capitals, uh, you know, venture capitalist portfolio. And the thing that I think Washington it, it sometimes misunderstands is that like Silicon Valley believes in power laws. There's a reason why there's only one SpaceX. There's a reason why there's only one Palantir, and it's because talent begets talent. 
uh, contracts beget contracts. You know, the, the, the scale oftentimes makes a company stronger, especially when we're talking about software and AI. And so the thing that I think a lot of the venture capitalists are arguing is we don't need to see every startup get through the valley of death. In fact, it's actually good if startups fail fast. Uh, and, and if we can isolate the ones that aren't going to work and pick the ones that are going to win, what we need to see is more than a hand, like, you know, right now we have a few companies that are doing quite well. And if you point to SpaceX, if you point to Palantir, those companies have billionaire co-founders and, and they will say that is part of the reason why they did so well is because they had a capital backstop when they were going through the hard years. And I think we need to see some normal companies, some people built by, you know, some companies built by first time founders or founders that don't necessarily have that sort of capital backstop being able to get through that valley of death getting the, the procurement contract or the production contracts, and then moving to program of record. And the minute that investors see that, and I do think that they need to see that in the next, I, I, it was more like, we need to see that in the next two years. We're not going to wait 10 years to see that. You will see more and more capital pouring into the sector because the DOD is showing that it very much wants to work with the startup community. Interesting. So we need uh, win, picking winners and you know losers here. Yeah, uh, which is not, not, is not what the government- everybody. And that's not what the government likes doing. I mean, that, that's uh, absolutely. sort of absolutely. I mean, you know, the years of the earmark, just taking care of everybody, spreading it around, uh, is is not the type of thing that gets venture capitalists like you motivated. You hit on China a little bit. I'm trying not to take the bait, but I will just for a couple minutes, and then we're gonna uh, zoom out and talk about uh, some of your points related to culture. Explain to me what you mean when you say China has the kind of structural advantage and and I get what you're saying. Autocratic regime, they can deploy a huge amount of resources and they're not constrained and they can constrain and they can pick winners and losers. Mm -hmm. At the same time, this is what I'd love for you to respond to, they can make very bad decisions and they're mm -hmm. insular they're they're very insular. You know, that's the mm -hmm. mindset of one person in President Xi or you know, a Politburo around him. It's not the free market, and ultimately, people, in my view and, and, and others, is that it's going to be their undoing, not their advantage. Catherine, uh, respond to that as it relates to the point you made earlier, that this is actually China's advantage here. So it's their procurement advantage. And let me say, I'm not drawing a, a vast conclusion that I think they're you know, going to be technologically superior because of it. It's more that if, if, the, if the CCP wants a company to work with them, they will tell that company, we're working with you. And there's nothing that that company can do about it. There's sort of an understanding that all all technology sort of accrues to the top of the government, and that they have their their their, the you know they get to pick the first companies that they want to work with. Um, that does that is not the case, um, as we saw with with Google, um, as we saw with companies publicly saying a few years ago, uh, we are not going to work on Project Maven. So we have a very different system in the U.S., a system that I love. I am a firm believer in the free market. I am, I'm not saying that I'd, I'd rather be in, this, <laughs> in, in China in any context. But what I'm saying is it's a very different system that requires the capitalist process to work. And I think what, what, what is wrong with the procurement structure is that it is not possible in many instances for the DOD to procure the best technology through the current system. I'm not saying we have to change the system. I'm saying there's incentives that make it very difficult to pick the winners. And we'll so- have come, We'll have to come back to this one a little bit and, and, and draw out your arguments and debate it further. But, but I'm gonna move on now, Catherine, to uh, a piece you wrote in Substack about a year ago entitled Make Government Cool Again, a really thought-provoking and provocative article. Mm -hmm. It gets to some of the points you made earlier about the Washington culture versus the Silicon Valley culture, but one of the key points is your assertion that Silicon Valley 
essentially, and the companies that's producing these tech, huge tech companies in particular, are shadow government. Mm -hmm. Explain what you mean by that. And it's almost as if Washington thinks they're the ones who are putting policies in place and governing the country. But when you peel the onion, again, my word's not yours, mm -hmm. it's actually a bunch of tech companies uh, in the Silicon Valley world that's doing it. And you say that explains why young people are going there yeah. rather than to government to work. So uh, unpack that a bit and correct anything I said incorrectly in summary. Yeah, yeah. So so the, and I think we should come back to why the young people are going to Silicon Valley, because I think that's an important point about talent that that is really at the crux of this piece. But in terms of, of what a shadow capital is, um, there's been shadow capitals, you know, throughout history where, uh, you know, there, there's examples of something like the United Fruit Company, where it's like it was actually being run out of Louisiana, but all of Central America was being run by a company, by a private company versus the, the weak governments that existed. I, in, I love in that, the way you explain the origin of the Banana Republic through yes. the story. Yeah, and, and so th th this is not new. Companies oftentimes have more power in terms of providing civic functions to, to citizens around the world. Um, but what I think is interesting about Silicon Valley is just how much power has been has has accrued in terms of doing these unique uh, civic functions. So I, I refer to it as a shadow capital because it's something where you know if, if you point to examples of, of you know private security or, or even sort of just the more traditional aerospace and defense, a lot of the the most interesting things that have happened in aerospace have happened because private companies are working with government and pushing things forward. It's not coming from the R&D community in Washington. It's coming from people like Elon Musk. And I think that's going to be broadly acceptable across a variety of civic functions. We already see it in, in, in public safety, you know, as we're seeing, um, you know, a, a lot of examples around cities in America where they just can't find police officers and police forces are declining. You're seeing companies build technology that actually solves crime. Um, I, I, one of the companies in the Andreessen portfolio that I, I'm most excited about is a company called Flock Safety, um, and it's a company and based. And it's called what? Flock Safety, um, and it's a company based in Atlanta. It's a, it, that builds a small camera that initially and, and, and still uh, works with with HOAs, uh, but is ultimately working with police departments around the country to solve Amber Alerts. Because if you can have cameras, cheap cameras on, on various parts of a community and someone, you know, unfortunately in, in a horrific situation steals a baby in a car, you can actually follow that car across the community and be able to find children who vanished. And so they have extraordinary uh, examples of, of how they've helped police departments through very simple, cheap off the shelf technology uh, solve the most horrific crimes. And so I think there's really great examples of allowing technologists to work with government. And, and I think this was actually the, the, the important part of the piece, because I think when I use the term shadow capital, people get scared. And what I actually mean by it is there's a lot of technology that can solve the most important functions of government, but government is going to have to learn to work with Silicon Valley and vice versa. Um, and so I'm really excited and optimistic about, about that, uh, that future. You know, uh, when reading the piece, it almost suggests to me that this is a problem that somehow the system isn't working the way it should. That is, our republic is not working the way it should if you have Silicon Valley carrying out these civic functions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to me, at least with a Reagan-esque outlook, other than the core constitutional functions given to the federal government, the outlook is we rather the free enterprise, free market deliver these technologies and know-how, and, and that's for the good of society. So did I misunderstand that? No. So I, I don't see it as a problem at all. I see it as a reality. 
And, and, and going back to the cultural point, the reason why I think it's a reality is because I think something greatly shifted about our country in 1973. A lot of people will point to, to various examples of what happened in the 70s to, to completely change our company or country. I think the biggest shift was the, the revocation of the draft. And what it did was, you know, before before 1973, everyone had to serve their country or every, you know, able-bodied male had to serve their country. And now I think there's been a shift where if you are of a certain class, if you go to a certain university, uh, you know, the, 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 the people who went to, to Princeton and Yale in the 1940s and 50s built our intelligence ap apparatus. And now those people go to work on Wall Street or they go to a tech company. And so there's been a bifurcation of talent in America where the people living on the coast, the people fortunate enough to get into the best universities are told that they should go into finance or go into some sort of private sector job. And the people who don't have that opportunity uh, don't get those opportunities. And so what, what I think is a, a big cultural shift is that talent has accrued to the Silicon Valley opportunity. And if we don't figure out a way for Washington to work with the people who are building in a totally different way, uh, who have a totally different vision of the future, we're going to have two very different capitals and two very different Americas. And so I, I actually think at the heart of it is this cultural shift that happened you know, almost 50 years ago, uh, and that we need to figure out a way to bring those two pieces of the puzzle back together. Well, it is quite interesting, um, kind of that narrative and, and these the view of these two capitals, no doubt Washington has big tech on its mind. Mm -hmm. And from, you know, your senators like Bernie Sanders from one end of the spectrum all the way to your senator like Josh Hawley, they would look at the shadow capital, agree with, the, agree with your assessment mm -hmm. and say, this is a huge problem. One paragraph in your piece probably uh, would really get someone's heart racing if they saw the world either through the Bernie Sanders lens or the Josh High lens, or actually those who um, fall someplace in between. And, and I'm talking about, you're right, it's clear if a young person today wants to have greater sway over policy, mm -hmm. one should move to Silicon Valley, something you've just shared with us, and build a company to compete with government. Mm -hmm. You want to adjudicate the norms and values of the country. There's no greater role than Twitter's trust and safety team. Yeah. And it's hard to argue the young person could have more sway in Washington as a congressional aide than a product manager with really, really good intentions. You must have relished writing that piece <laughs> of the article. You knew yeah. you were just going to, you know, the, the, the fireworks were Is going off. Is it giving off. you heartburn? Is it giving you heartburn? Yes. No, well, and, and, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it really, to me, explains why so many in Washington are concerned, because they would share your assessment and say, yeah. this is a big problem. As you note in your article, those people at Twitter are not elected. Yes. Yeah. No. And, 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 I, and I would actually make a distinction between, you know, you said something interesting, which is big tech. Uh, I, I consider myself to work in small tech. And I think we do a terrible job of explaining that startups are actually like small businesses, but they're small businesses that are that are so important and so needed and the customer loves them so much they grow very fast. Um, startups are, 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 are going against those big, you know, big incumbents. Uh, they want to solve the problems that those big incumbents create. Um, so, so it's interesting. I, 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 I would make a distinction between the companies that are moderating the public square um, which, of course, that's a First Amendment issue that's very different than the companies like Flock Safety or Andural that are supporting the government and its important needs and can in some ways you know, do that better than sort of legacy companies and companies that, that can't provide the software, can't provide the AI that's yeah. needed for the 21st century. That's a strong distinction. And you know, from the outlook that certainly conservatives have, 
they don't bemoan that the technologist has gone to the private sector and now is focused on delivering that to government. And they would agree government's got to get out of its own way and learn to integrate and adopt uh, that know-how. That's kind of the free market and our system working at its best if it can do it. You know, see our conversation earlier mm -hmm. in this podcast. Where government should be, though, mm -hmm. right, is the regulator at some level of those bigger companies that are actually have the power you describe. Uh, they are working for, you know, quote unquote, public safety at Twitter. No. And government needs to come in and say, hey, that is beyond the pale, beyond, you know, the scope of what a private entity should do. Mm -hmm. That is actually a core function of government now you, you've weighed into. And you shall be subject to our laws, our regulations, and our oversight. Yeah. In that well, respect, I mean, the shadow capital is a, is a problem. Well, it, it, it's a, so it's interesting because, you know, the, the example that, that you're using and that I wrote about is the First Amendment issue. Yes. And, that's, and, that's, and that is one part of, of, of what happens when technology becomes very, very big. Um, but we've always had a very strong private defense base. We've always had, you know, examples of companies that want to work with government, that support government. And that has never, you know, it, it's it, it, it's not the same thing as, you know, as regulating the public square. So I agree with you. I, you know, I think most people are comfortable with this idea of, you know, there are certain values and freedoms in America, like the First Amendment, that we all agree and uphold. And, and that's something where I'm, I'm, you know, excited about the debate that's happening in terms of there shouldn't be any one, you know, trust and safety official at Twitter who just is allowed to click a button and we don't know why. Um, that's, you know, it's become somewhat of a joke on Twitter that people will just be disappeared and we have no, no clue why that's happened, including a sitting president. Um, but on the flip side of that, uh, I, I think there are it is imperative that some of these companies are able to solve these problems that you're not going to have the government solving. There is not, you know, an engineering class that is working in the public sector um, that's going to be able to build these companies from scratch and be able to support the needs of citizens. And so I think there's there's a distinction there, but it's but it's a it's a a point well taken that I, that I think it, it does give some senators heartburn to look at the example of the trust and safety official at Twitter. Let's have one more uh, kind of discussion point around this article, and then we'll go to our lightning round. Your article is entitled Make Government Cool Again. Mm -hmm. It suggests not only should the know-how of the tech world have an opportunity to enter, penetrate, contribute federal government. You know, in, in, in your portfolio, you're looking at national defense, security, mm -hmm. uh, public safety. Mm -hmm. It also suggests something that government has to do, uh, that, mm -hmm. that, that the, they don't have the right people. Any mm -hmm. thoughts, Catherine, on what needs to happen so the mindset, that culture that you were talking about earlier, changes? Is it a, is it a function of acquisition law, uh, regulation? Is it leadership? Obviously, rhetoric isn't enough based on our earlier conversation. What mm -hmm. has to happen to, to truly make government cool again? Yeah, yeah. So I think that the cultural shift and the understanding that Silicon Valley is a builder culture and Washington is never going to be a builder culture, I think people just have to come to terms with that because there's been a lot of experiments of, well, let's bring Silicon Valley into our world and the, the chaos that it causes, it's not actually um, useful. Uh, I think there needs to be a recognition that the people who want to build will always build. 
and that it's okay to allow them to do the things that they are great at, which is to build for, for the biggest problems in America. You know, at Andreessen Horowitz, we're, we're launching a platform that we're titling American Dynamism because we believe that Silicon Valley and we believe that companies, particularly startups, can solve America's biggest problems and the problems that are like core national interest. Um, and so I think there just needs to be more of an understanding that Silicon Valley is on the side of America and is on the side of fixing these problems um, is, you know, and, and that they're not completely the enemy, um, even if there are examples of bad actors or are examples of big companies not wanting to work with DOD. Uh, there's so many counterexamples to that of people who want to solve the biggest problems. So that's that's one cultural shift that I think needs to happen. Uh, one follow-up on that. Can you accomplish the goals of Andreessen Horowitz's American dynamism with government operating and the people you have in government today? Or is that even no matter how much you get your entrepreneurs and founders to come up with great solutions, at the end of the day, they can't do it on their own. It's going to have to have some change in Washington. This is the upshot of, of, of reading your article, I would think. So I, I am optimistic. Uh, again, uh, optimism is, is prized in Silicon Valley. So I'm optimistic that the, the problems that we are facing are so crucial that the next decade of innovation is going to be well-received by Washington and that citizens are going to demand it. You know, we, we when, when you look at sort of a, a DOD procurement officer, I think, and, and I, I have tremendous empathy for, for people who are working in the bureaucracy, who understand that the consumer technology that they use in their day-to-day -day lives is so much better than the technology that they are allowed to use for their work. And I think that is the next frontier of, of, of investing in technologies that a lot of the technologies that exist in our personal lives are ultimately going to enter government and make it more efficient. So I am very optimistic about that. I do think we're also on the precipice of, of a dramatic shift in Washington and that the people who are in Washington, I mean, we're, in some ways we are governed by a gerontocracy. These people remember life before the internet and not only do they remember it, uh, but it's the vast majority of their life was spent without the internet. And so what I am, am very focused on is we need young people, young people who are digitally native to go into government and to recognize that technology is not the enemy, that it's an accelerant, that it is an integral part of our daily lives, and that it has to be used by, by government in order to solve these civic problems. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. I think we're going to see an incredible class of young people running for office. And, and ultimately, you know, in the next 10 years, they will be the leadership in Washington. Uh, but we, we need to make sure that some of those people are builders and that they're sympathetic to the message of building for important problems. Interesting. So it's not about left or right, red or blue. It's uh, about whether you were a product of the age of the internet and the digital age, or did you uh, have the meaningful experiences in life prior to that world? That's a, that's an interesting way uh, to look at that, Catherine. And and and, to, and do you believe in building? Do you believe in progress? Do you believe in growth? I, I think you know one of the things that that used to be sort of understood is that America is an exceptional country and that we should build for it, that we should continue growing, and and that was a, a widespread philosophy that that didn't need to be red or blue. It, it, it was very much just a belief of of the vast majority of Americans. I think in in some cases we have lost that. Um, but I think there is a young generation that that believes that deeply. A lot of them come to Silicon Valley to build, and I think that the fruits of their successes are going to lead more and more young people uh, to believe that America's days are, are ahead of us. Best days. Oh, are I love it. You're, you're you're channeling some Reagan right now, so you're <laughs> anticipating the lightning round. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. All right, but you know, it's, it, you talk about they come to Silicon Valley, but increasingly we read about people leaving Silicon Valley and they go to places like. Texas or Florida or elsewhere. So I'm just assuming that when you talk about Silicon Valley, it's less uh, a geographic spot, you know, it's sitting there in, in California, but more of a mindset and a culture. 
It is. And, and you took the words out of my mouth because I'm sitting in Miami right now. I think uh, the, the promise of technology is that it will touch all 50 states and touch the world. And that's exactly what it is doing. And I think if there's any gift from, from the experience we've had in COVID, there was a widespread belief uh, in 2019, you know, early 2020, that you had to build in an ecosystem and you had to build in Silicon Valley, maybe New York City. That has completely changed. Uh, and I think when you see the number of extraordinary companies that are being built in Atlanta, Austin, Utah, um, all you know, Chicago, all all over the all over the country, um, and 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 increasingly in towns where where they, there wasn't a startup ecosystem five years ago, uh, we're going to see innovation for America just explode. And well, that's, that's what great. we're excited. The geographical about. distribution across the country has got to be good for. Uh, the technology, because that's where we started. You want to have that diversity, but even more importantly, it's going to be good for the country uh, as well. Um, Catherine, let's jump to our lightning round. Wonderful conversation. This is where we ask our guests to give us their favorite Reagan book, their favorite Reagan speech, or favorite Reagan quote. You can give us all three, two, or just one. What do you have for us? Yeah, so, so the last time I was at the library uh, for RNDF, uh, I was struck by, and I can't remember which room it was in, but but the the quote from the 92, um, I think it was the 92 convention. And, and, and of course, this is something Reagan said many times, but America's best days are yet to come. Our proudest moments are yet to be. Our most glorious achievements are just ahead. And I think this is this is really the thesis of American dynamism. One of the things that I, that I think is, has been lost in the last 20 years is that I don't know how many people believe that truly now. And I think there is something about what technology is doing and when it really reaches all Americans that people will believe that once again. And we are very much betting that that, that is true, that the, that the best days of America are just ahead. We'll leave it there, Catherine. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.